0: and welcome you're listening to fourth estate the show where journalists talk journalism coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast my name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology Sydney and my producers today are Anthony Dockrell and Michael Jones This week on 4th Estate, we're all about your right to know. On Monday, the country's papers in a coordinated campaign landed on breakfast tables around the nation with redacted text on the front page. It was a stark reminder that press freedom in Australia is under attack like never before. And today we're going to ask, has the right to know campaign moved the needle on this debate? And how does the news media get the public on side for this campaign? Also, the Walkley Award nominees have been announced, and there's a little bit more about that in a second, but the Walkley Award nominees have been announced, and they are the top gongs for excellence in journalism, and this year they include the Al Jazeera story, A Scoop, called How to Sell a Massacre. In that story, you may recall, a journalist went undercover, not revealing his true identity, to expose the very disturbing links between the National Rifle Association in the United States and the One Nation's Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. But in doing so, the Journal broke the ethical rules that the MEAA and the Walkleys normally follow, That, namely that a journalist must identify themselves as such. So the question really is, did the Walkley judges get this right? Making an exception to this piece of journalism, was it a question of the rules be damned? We're also going to explore uh, several aspects of Indigenous representation in the news media. Firstly, how Indigenous voices are represented inside of newsrooms, and secondly, how Indigenous issues are reported. And, time permitting, we should touch on the big business story of the Media Week, the proposed purchase of regional TV channel Prime by Channel 7. Is this another blow for media diversity, or just a sign of the times when the only way to survive is to keep getting bigger and bigger? To discuss this and more, we are joined by two Walkley Award nominees. So no pressure and no conflict of interest here, and certainly no jinxing. So uh, Michael Cosio is a fourth estate alumni and a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He's just been nominated alongside Jennifer Duke for their work on covering the firing of former ABC Managing Director Michelle Guthrie. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Hello,
1: Peter. Hello, Lorena.
0: And, oh, and, and we are so blessed. Here we go. He's just scooped me. I and mean, we're so <laughs> blessed to have the indigenous editor of The Guardian, Lorena Alum, on the line from Alice Springs.
2: Hello, Michael. Hello, Peter.
0: And uh, just in case you missed it, Lorena has also been nominated for, uh, uh, for the Walkley Awards this year for what is an amazing and excellent confronting and essential work called The Killing Time, A Massacre Map. Yeah, so best of luck both of you with that. We're not going to talk at length about the Walkleys because, I, you know, we'll talk about them when you've won one, okay? Because that would
1: be weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So
0: let's talk about press, the right to know. It's not often the media in this country speaks with one voice, but this week it did just that. Uh, Your right to know campaign aims to raise awareness, uh, but also change the law and how journalism is conducted in this country. I mean, as we all know, so far this year, News Corp journalist Anika Smethers on the ABC have been raided by federal police in the move. Many inside the media see as a clear warning to journalists and whistleblowers. And we've had, for instance, an example of the ABC chair, Ida Buttrose, among others, saying that it's, those raids have already had a chilling effect on, on, the, uh, on whistleblowers coming forward. And this is on top of, gov- of a government that is now operating in what it seems to me anyway, an ever more opaque opaque, sorry, and secret fashion, stamping top secret on documents uh, so that it gets them, makes them harder and harder to get under FOI. Michael, let's start with you. Are you kind of happy, were you surprised by the campaign this Monday and I guess what outcome are we hoping to see?
1: Uh, well, I wasn't that surprised because I did know it was coming and also it's kind of been brewing mm-hmm. for uh, quite a few months now, certainly ever since those dramatic raids mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Uh, so I think it's a good thing, you know, like any journalist, I'm you know constantly frustrated by uh, attempts to uh, contain and withhold information. You know, sometimes reporting on the Home Affairs Department and the immigration system, you're kind of constantly banging your head against a wall to try and get anything out of these people, uh, often, often when it's just not... Even when it's kind of innocuous, it's not even, you know, Watergate or anything. It's just my friend and colleague – well, not colleague, but my friend and fellow journalist, Paul Carpott, the Guardian, was just this week trying to work out whether an invoice or a a yearly statement included GST or not. And it's taken more than 24 hours just to get an answer on that basic question. So you you encounter this sort of stuff all the time, and it's great that we are – uh, you know, pushing back against it in a very vocal and very yeah. forthright way.
0: I guess we're all on a bit of a unity ticket here. But uh, Lorena, what do you think of Scott Morrison in Parliament this week? Kind of, make, kind of trying to uh, sit both sides of the fence. You know, he kind of said he was in favour of press freedom, but virtually in the same breath he said, oh, well, no one's above the law. Uh, so <laughs> how, does that, how does that sit? How do, you know, was he trying to run both sides of the, of the, uh- of the race here?
2: I don't know. Is it surprising when politicians try to have an each-way bet?
0: No, no, not at all. Uh, I guess all. it's up.
2: To, <laughs> but I guess it's up to us to really question him about what that means. Um, mm. Whether whether we have access to, to, to politicians to properly ask them those questions is, is what uh, I think is of concern to journalists. Is the accountability that that um, politicians have to the public via us
0: seems yeah.
3: to
2: be shrinking. So it's it's, it's People can ponder what he means until we have an opportunity to ask him properly. We can only speculate.
0: Well, of course, and there's a few other questions we'd like to ask him, like did he try and get Brian Houston to the White House? But he, he seems very good at managing the media. What's your take on the Morrison government on, in, the, in, the, in those terms, You know, in terms of not making themselves open to uh, scrutiny?
2: I well, think if governments can avoid scrutiny, they, they do. Mm. So I'm up in the Northern Territory now, and I'm a bit removed from federal politics this week. But what I what I can tell you about the Northern Territory government is they don't have a, a, a very robust FOI regime. They don't have disclosure logs for their departments, which is a which is a common thing in the Commonwealth. You can go to a, a Commonwealth Department of Education, mm. and they will offer you a disclosure log of any and all FOI or Freedom of Information applications that have been made. Um, The Territory doesn't do that, and um, it's it's very, very um, reluctant to, to provide that sort of information to journalists. It also doesn't have adequate whistleblower protection. There is no specific legislation up here to protect whistleblowers. So I think if governments of all types are able to avoid public scrutiny, that's often what they prefer to do.
0: And yet, at the same time, they say they're in favor of media, you know, media freedom. Michael, the New York Times has been cited a few times in this debate because there was a piece written by Damien Cave, the MIT person here, saying that you know, Australia is the most secretive democracy in the world. Is that, is that your take on it? I mean, it's, that seems a massive claim to me, to be honest. But...
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't have the knowledge that would be required to make that assessment, um, And if Damien Cave does, then perhaps he does. I don't know. Sure. Uh, We'll ask him about (laughs) it. I mean, look, I think we, you know, let's apply the same scepticism that we as journalists would apply to any other campaign that we we might encounter. I mean, you know, Morrison is kind of, you know, he's making a reasonable point that half the readers I reckon agree with, just judging by the feedback, a Mm. lot of people out there say, why do journalists think that they should be above the law. And actually, unless you are going to, as a journalist or as a media organisation, make the claim that journalists should be completely exempt from all aspects of these laws, then, and you you could make that claim if you wanted to, but unless you are going to say that, then you have to draw a line somewhere and you have to Mm. write a law that grants journalists... Uh, you know particular rights but, but not yeah, sure. long. but I so, don't no, one's, which, no know, one's
0: arguing that the journalists are above the law are they I mean this is a kind of classic red herring isn't it a political tactic to suggest well, it
1: well I mean we're certainly arguing that we shouldn't have the same law sure. well, that we should be able to do our job yes yeah. which I, is I, fair I enough
2: I think're so, saying Go. what we're saying is that the law does not offer the public hmm. adequate uh, capacity to understand the, the decisions that are being made in their name. Indeed. So it's not about journalists being above the law. It's about journalists being able to operate within a reasonable law or series of laws. And that, I think, is, is, is what's at stake. We're not saying that we're above the law. No, and no. and it's, it's a classic political distraction tactic to even say that.
0: Yes, well, that's right. So, just just on that point, you mentioned the public. I mean, one aspect of this. I mean, let's let's not you know let's call a spade a spade is that um, journalists and politicians are both not particularly held in high esteem by the public. So, how are we going to get the you first, Lorraine, and then to you, Michael? How are we going to get the public on side in this debate?
2: I think appealing to their interests. Say, well, we and I think some of the sort of the the, uh, advertising that that come out this last week goes to this. So mm. saying to them, we would not have an aged care royal uh, condition were it not for the, the reporting mm-hmm. of journalists who exposed the treatment of our elderly. In nursing homes, we would not have an investigation into the, Don, the atrocities at the Don Dale Youth Detention Centre if it hadn't been for the work of journalists.
3: Mm-hmm. So if
2: the public cares about the way its citizens are treated in this country, uh, then it needs a robust media. It needs a healthy public broadcaster or broadcasters um, and a healthy media ecosystem. And part of that ecosystem is being able to operate under um, reasonable legislation. Mm. Um, The the Americans are quite astonished when when you you try and explain to them the restrictions of our defamation legislation. Uh, They have a very different, they have a very public system yeah. Um, I was talking to journalists in Norway who talk about Jealousy Day, which is an annual day in Norway where everybody's tax returns are made public. Wow! So and, and they see that as a kind fairly thing.
0: <laughs> I love those <laughs> Norwegians. <the> <laughs> so they, and
2: that's that's okay. That that's how public they want to be about things. Yeah. So they just everybody's tax returns are made public. Yeah. In Norway.
0: yeah fair enough interesting isn't it yeah well i mean we've got a long way to go then on that level um michael you spend quite a lot of time in canberra uh do you think part of the problem here is that the political class and the journalism class report you know are just too chummy spend too much time together
1: oh no i don't think it's that look i think uh, you know i'm not you, you see this all the time especially around the time of the midwinter ball when you know mm. people start whinging about how you know that's they're all just hanging out together and enjoying each other's company and they should be out there at the barricades you know uh yeah. 24 f- 24 7 seems to well, be the view of some well that's what the um, news cycle is man. i mean i think that's rubbish but uh <laughs> i know there's no it's not chummy i mean you know any journo worth their salt would you know, kill for a story that brings down a minister or something. So Mm. it's not, I don't think uh, it's a problem that, you know, we're too close to the political class. But, you know, I do think it is a problem for this campaign. And and I think the campaign is pitched in exactly the right way. It's, you know, it's about the stories. It's Mm -hmm. about the public's right to know. It's right there in the name. Mm -hmm. But I do not think you're ever going to get to the stage where people are marching down George Street for this.
0: In favour of journalism.
1: I just don't think it's going – I mean, yeah. I'd love to be proven wrong, but I don't think that's going I'm to happen.
0: Sure yeah, I'm sure we'd all love to be proven wrong on that. Can we move on a little bit to um, the Walkleys, talking about journalism, and and uh, the Walkley Award nominations came out in this past week, and one of the uh, nominations for, I think, Scoop of the Year was the Al Jazeera story, How to Sell a Massacre. Uh, so for those of you who may not know about this story, it involves an Al Jazeera reporter, Roger Muller, Working undercover and traveling with One Nation's James Ashby and Steve Dixon to America, where it where it's, it, it filmed, where Al Jazeera filmed, and participated in One Nation's attempts to gain money from the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and other gun rights lobbies. So there's a couple elements here to tease out. Um, Lorena, the, you know, there's no one's arguing about this. The reporter went undercover, wrote the ethical guidelines. So was it uh, justified? Was it the ends, you know, were the, were the means justifying the ends in this case?
2: I'm going to struggle answering that. So it wasn't the journal. It was Roger, um, I don't think of his name. So Roger Muller. The guy who went undercover. would Yeah technically a journalist. He was he was a mate of the journalist. Oh, that's But yes, yeah. I, um, I may be off splitting. Cares. He was an
1: associate of the investigations editor. Yeah. yeah. Right.
2: Um, who chose him because he had his appearance and his demeanor gave, you know, he seemed convincing in that sort of a role. But mm. so I, I watched the documentary. I was, it was absolutely scary. And I do think, in a way, the things that it revealed were in the public interest. Um, I'm not sure that, that uh, I can comment on the ethics of it. I wasn't involved in making the editorial decisions around that program. Mm. But I have to say, as a viewer, it was absolutely compelling.
0: It was compelling. But just on that point, I mean, I guess the question really boils down to this. And as you say, we don't really know because we weren't on the team doing it. But was there any other way of getting that information and doing that story? I guess from the outside, it looks not.
2: I, yeah, I don't, look, it's hard to say, but I doubt it. Mm. I think those sort of candid um, uh, comments, you, you can't get them any other way. That's true. Um, I've, it's similar to footage that, that's been uh, the, that police have used, I guess, to entrap people who are, uh, you know. So, uh, the, the one that springs to mind is the the cricket scandal in India, mm. um, and the bribery, you know, match fixing mm. scandals. But, but that was the kind of recording that was made without the knowledge of another person. I, um, I think in in the in the US, it's quite legal in certain states to record a conversation, provided one side of the conversation knows it's being recorded. Mm. So not
0: not the case here.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> My, what do you think, Michael? Uh, about the look, eth- I, I, ethical breach here.
1: I mean, I I won't go as far as to say it's unethical, but I say that it definitely straddled the border. Yes, pushes of ethics. against. It. Yeah. Um and I say that because I mean, yeah, you know, you they did hire this guy who was a, you know, a, Pet food business owner and now or something, but you know, five minutes before he was doing this, so you know he's not a lifelong.
0: We shouldn't, shouldn't hold that against him.
1: No, <laughs> but you know, he's someone who comes from outside the industry. Yeah. Right. Now he's operating under the direction of um, Peter Charlie, the yep. investigations editor. So you know, you've got someone with a long history, a long and, history in and incredible at the helm. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, and you know, as a fellow journalist, I would trust his judgment. Yep. Um, but uh you know you also then have to face up to the fact that well you know they did kind of bring these people over here to the US um where they then you know had meetings with the NRA now the central allegation um against them was that they went there to solicit donations from the NRA uh now you talk to one nation people about this they're very unhappy with the way that was portrayed because they the way they see it they went over there to have meetings to learn, you know, stuff. Some stuff from the NRA, whatever it is you want to learn from them, uh, and then you know, it, Mueller got them drunk and they started going on about it. Wouldn't well, it be nice if you know? So how there's an they element of entrapment. Yeah, um, I well, think you can certainly entrapment. say that there seems to be some entrapment there now. You know, whether they, I mean, you know, are we going to s- spend all night crying over this? You know, well, they're, I, they're idiots. They let themselves. They got themselves into the <laughs> sure. situation. Uh, the footage kind of tells the story, but. You know, on the other hand, uh, this is something that, yeah, as I said, really straddles the border of what would be considered okay, ethical so just, in journalism.
0: Just to put you on the spot, are you going to be happy if it wins the Walkley?
1: <laughs> oh, I thought, you know, I, sure, I'd be happy for them.
0: What's it up against? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have yeah. the full list in front of yeah. me. Lorena, were you happy if it wins the Walkley?
2: I can say. Look, I, yeah, no, I can't answer
0: that. It'll be great because it'll be controversial. And yeah, that's what we it'll want. it will be a good night in the Walkley's if that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. James uh, just Ashby be, will hit the roof. Just, anyway. well, James Ashby, maybe you'll get a Walkley. I mean, they gave one to Peter, um, what's her face? Um, uh, Credlin, um, tell me, uh, just on this, just to finish on this, uh, what about your own uh, sort of ethics here? So, would you, you know, put on a wig and a pair of dark d- sunglasses, Lorena, to go undercover to uh, get a yarn?
2: Um, it would not be my only approach to a story, no. I would say no okay. up front, but, but if it were part of a, a suite of other measures, as the politicians say, then I, I would think about it. But up front, no, absolutely mm. not.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: Michael, mm. uh, wig,
1: sunglasses? Oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with camouflaging my identity because um, I think the, the the general gist of it is if you're if you're observing what's happening anyway, Mm -hmm. then that's fine. I mean, when you're creating situations for people, when you're engineering circumstances, that's entrapment, not playing dress-ups and secretly recording stuff. I think that's okay.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah, because I guess the distinction here is can you go undercover and
1: kind of keep your hands clean? I mean, you know, is it a smoking gun? If you're bearing witness, that seems much more reasonable to me than if you're kind of engineering situations for people. If you're people. getting
0: people drunk and what have you.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, I, if you're, I, uh, and if you're bringing them over to the US to kind of, you know, make connections and all this sort of thing. I mean, he was he was, he he was was the connection guy. He was the, the mm. link. Mm. He purported to be this guy who was, you know, in with the NRA. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's why One Nation believes it was a setup.
0: Yeah. Irina, sorry.
1: You
2: can't, you just... you, no, I was going to say you can't publish or report anything that you have collected by means where you haven't declared who you are and who you work for, I, I would not. I would never do that. Mm. I wouldn't put on the wig and glasses, right? And, and without declaring to people what I intended to do and who I work for.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, I, so, so because what's interesting about this is just a final point, I guess, is that it, it doesn't. It isn't covered by the ethics laws, the MEAA laws, or the Walkley own guidelines. So, does that mean then we need to change our ethics guidelines
1: very possibly i mean i agree you should never miss you should never misrepresent mm. yourself as someone else i mean i you know, <coughs> i'm happy to go and like sit at the back of a lecture theater in a wig and you know kind of you know, <laughs> know uh, of time? <laughs> uh, you know that kind of undercover but you know if you're actually going to tell people that you're someone that you're not i think that mm. definitely crosses the line mm.
2: You can do that, but you can't publish it. You can't report it. That
1: would be my. That would be the line I draw. So your your line you're
0: drawing, yes, okay. You could do that if that gave you information, which you then, you know, declared in 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 subsequent reporting kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Although if it was a pretty fabulous wig, I'd consider.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's some great wigs around. Um, Okay, let's move on before we get to this uh, proposed. Prime Purchase by Seven, I did want, I mean, I've wanted. We've got Lorena Alum on the phone, and I did want to talk a little bit about Aboriginal representation in the news media. I mean, that's been a long standing point of contention, point of debate. Um, and it seems to be changing a little bit. Your appointment at The Guardian, I think, is an, an example of that. What do you think, Lorena, in terms of Aboriginal representation inside of mainstream newsrooms? You know, there's a little bit of There's a few positive signs, or am I being a little bit too optimistic? What's your thinking on that?
2: Maybe a little bit optimistic. Okay. Although, it's really encouraging to see that the Judith Nielsen Institute has funded a couple of positions at the morning Herald now, which is fantastic. It's the first time in, I don't know, more than 30 years, 40 years even, that they've employed an Aboriginal person Mm. at the Herald. We were just talking about this today, actually, that as the great legacy of the Photographer Mervyn Bishop, another Walkley winner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great that the, the Herald has seen that there is value in employing Aboriginal journalists and seeing that the extra um, angles and the extra access that they can bring to stories in the Indigenous sphere. Uh, so that's really encouraging.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think. The rest of the media and, and you know, my countrywoman, Brooke Boney at, um, and Commercial TV. Now, yep. that's a huge um, step forward. Um, it's great to be at The Guardian. I'm really, really happy to be there, to be in a in a mainstream media organisation that wants to do this kind of work. That is a big change. That is a big step forward. But the public broadcasters do uh, need to lift their game uh, when it comes to diversity on air and uh, diversity of content.
3: I think
2: they. I think having worked for decades at the ABC, the ABC is very well aware of how far it's come in terms of indigenous representation, but just how far it also needs to go in um, in you know fully incorporating indigenous viewpoints and indigenous commentators into their news coverage.
0: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, look as a as a general statement, uh, we journalism is a very white profession
2: very, very wide and very middle-class. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, newsrooms are very monocultural mm. and that's true for, for all sorts of pe- for people from all sorts of walks of life. Mm. And that's, you know, that's not just a problem for Aboriginal reporters. That's, you know, across the board.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. And it does affect what gets reported, right?
2: I think it does because, well, yes, I think it does. Mm. Um, one of the great things about being at The Guardian is being having the opportunity to do these kind of big data projects that really, um, we hope, are driving attention and driving uh, change on issues that, that Aboriginal people are really, really concerned about. So whether that's truth-telling about history or um, policing, justice and death in custody, um, those things matter to people. So uh, I think newsrooms want to cover this stuff, but they don't know how. Mm. And they know that the old ways of doing it aren't the right ways anymore. So I think it's about um, them reaching out to to Indigenous journalists to to ask, well, how do we do this?
0: Yeah, because I mean, I think you're right. It's not. I don't think there's a. Well, maybe there is, but in my opinion and my experience as well, there's not a conscious sort of anti. Oh, we mustn't have Aboriginal people. It's just that they, as you say, that most newsrooms don't seem or haven't seen any up to now. Seemed a way to get there. You know it's just a a question of there I don't think it's lack of willingness, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Michael, you've been in newsrooms. What do you think?
1: Oh, I think you only need to look at the sort of when whenever people do those all newsroom photographs sometimes for campaigns like the ones we just discussed, you know you can always see it um in the kind of a diversity or lack thereof um, so I you know wouldn't have really have much to add other than yes, mm. it's you know we're very happy to uh, be hiring to new Indigenous reporters, um, a reporter and a, a visual journalist. and a visual, yeah. Um, a... Hats off to Lisa Davies, our editor, for um, really driving that um, with mm-hmm. the Judith Nielsen yep. uh, money, which is uh, fantastic. And, you know, along, alongside the campaign that we started a little while ago about uh, for Indigenous recognition. Mm-hmm. So I think they're positive signs.
0: Yeah. Long way to go, though, hey? Mm. Mm. Okay, let's uh, moving on. You're listening to The Fourth Estate with me, Peter Frey, um, and our fantastic guest this week, Michael Cosio from City Morning Herald, The Age. I, I, ref- I nearly said Fairfax, but I, you can't say it hey. anymore. Nine Entertainment oh, yeah. Group <laughs> and Lorena Allen from The Guardian. Um, there's a big news story uh, in the sort of business side of media this week, and that is the moves by the Seven West Media to buy the regional broadcaster Prime in, the, in a $64 million uh, so Prime holds free TV licenses in regional New South Wales, and Victoria and uh, Western Australia, the ACT, Southeast Queensland and the Gold Coast. Um, you know, the new boss of 7West Media uh, said that he was going to start buying and start merging and he's doing exactly that. Uh, what do we make of it, though, uh, Lorena? The, you know, you're out there in the bush, you're out there in regional areas where <laughs> there's there's not a lot of diversity, and here we have a regional broadcaster being swallowed up by a, a big city-based one.
2: Mm. Uh, I think it's, it's hard for regional broadcasters to survive without that bigger um, parent company mm. propping them up, because it's really hard to it's hard to get advertising, it's hard to get eyeballs on your advertising as a free-to-air station. I think uh, those uh, regional stations are, are learning because they're on the front line of this new uh, on-demand viewing that, that is really killing you know, free-to-air TV. Yeah. So
3: it's
2: not, in, in a way, the industry is under so much pressure, it's changing so quickly. But in a way, I'm not surprised that the regional um, stations are the first to go. Um, it's, it's very sad for local journalism and it's very sad for, by extension, the rest of journalism because some of the best and brightest reporters who work in the national news media have cut their teeth in local politics and mm. going to local council and, mm, uh, uh, and, and coming up through those ranks. So it's, it's a loss to journalism when you see those local stations um, losing their... Um, their capacity to cover
0: local issues. Well, I think you're dead right. I mean, it's a real problem when they... That, you know, that you're faced with this choice to either kind of get big or, or die. I guess, to be fair, to be fair to the Sunworth media, we don't know the details of what they're going to do with Prime. Um, obviously, there would be cost savings. Um, there'll be probably the first thing they'll say will be cost savings in the back end among the accountants and what have you, uh, rather than frontline people. But we have seen, you know, in the last year or so, uh, closures of um, uh, in the wind network as well in um, places like Dubbo and such like. So, yeah, it's not the easiest times, is it,
1: Michael? Uh well, I mean, I can hardly object <laughs> um, well, to you know takeovers of that nature, I suppose. Um, but you know, I mean, I think at least our experience with Nine shows that it doesn't have to always be a uh, negative. I mean, you know, and it does work. It, yeah, how is it costs working? Costs so cut in the back end, as you say. Mm. Um, so far, the newsrooms are getting along pretty well. So uh, you know, one wants to be, you know. Optimistic about these things as much as possible. I must admit, for a long time, and I sort of thought Prime was Seven as a kid growing up, because you know you kind of go to these regional towns. Well, they're they're, you sort of, they're affiliated. Aren't yes. They. Yeah. Um, and then I eventually learned that uh, no, in fact, they were separately owned. So, I mean, look, I did, you know I don't have a huge kind of I don't have any sort of philosophical problem with it. You might say, mm. um, but uh, it's all it's only really ever as good as the judgment of. Mm. the company's leaders.
0: Mm. Yes, okay. Well, we'll see. Wait and see. Before we leave the show, I do want to ask you both um, about the stories that you're working on or, or actually in your case, Michael, you know, mm. it's been about a year since we had all that turmoil in the ABC which you reported to such an extent you've got this Walkley nomination. Um, how do you feel like the ABC is going under uh, Ita SL?
1: Well, I, mean, I don't follow it uh, so closely. I'm not the communications roundsman anymore but... Um, mm you know just talking to abc people kind of you know very occasionally writing about it it seems like they at least have the oh, spring in their step might be putting it too far but they um, you know, they're not particularly springy no look i mean it's all going to it's all going to depend on um what happens in further funding negotiations mm. i'd suspect I I, I don't think Morrison particularly wants another huge kind of culture war fight over the ABC. I mean, I could be wrong about that, Mm. Um, but uh, we'll see, obviously, in the budget. But I think at least they have someone who uh, is close to Morrison in ITA, not in the way that Justin Milne... And um, Malcolm Turnbull were close, but someone who I think, you know, he respects her judgment. Yeah, they can talk Um, the same language, right? He very much wanted her to have that job. He was presented with other options. He said, no, I want Ida. So there's someone in the chair of the ABC who's got the ear of the prime minister on behalf of the ABC. uh, And that can only be a good thing. And I think you're seeing generally throughout the staff of the ABC, they're pretty content with... David Anderson is a new managing director, mm-hmm. uh, so you know. I mean, uh, we'll see what happens in the budget. Yeah, uh, we, will. we but... will.
0: Lorena, are you missing the ABC?
2: <laughs> yes, of course. It's like my it's like my um, home, really. I yeah. mean, I, I worked there for twenty something near
3: yeah,
2: twenty seven years. Oh wow! Well, yeah. So yes, uh, of course I I, I miss it. I, I'm a big fan of the ABC. Right. So the. the... <laughs> I'm working at the Guardian while the MD and the uh, chairman of the board lost their jobs. It was a bit like watching your house burn down from across the street. Mm. So it was Mm. quite distressing to watch. And I was getting some interesting takes on things from my dear friends who still work there in this burning house. Mm. Um, So it's good to see the new MD and the new chair kind of cool things down and calm things down and and present a, a united front to negotiate with this government, which is, is hostile for the ABC. There's no two ways about it. No
3: So um, yes.
2: sending the federal police in to raid you is, is is a declaration, I think. Um the ABC dealt with it beautifully and i have to say John Lyon's live tweeting the whole event from the room was just the most uh gripping uh Twitter thread I think I've ever seen. It was yeah, it was and,
0: a it was a special use of the platform, wasn't
2: it? It yeah. certainly was. So yeah. um So it's it's encouraging to see that Ida has She's popular with the staff, at least the staff I've I've spoken to, and they are hopeful that she has the kind of media experience and clout and respect that that the person in that job needs Mm,
0: to
3: to
2: steer the ABC.
0: Last question for you, I think. What's the next uh, story in terms of that flows out of, say, the massacre map?
2: Right. We're in the process now of um, releasing the last lot of data for the year. Right. So we've got another, I think, another 50 sites to add to the map that we've been working with the University of Newcastle to refine. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that still need verification but we'll be updating it um, in the next couple of weeks with okay. that new data and some new reporting.
0: Great. Well, watch this space. Yep. In the meantime, uh, have a great time in Alice. Um when are we going to start seeing that? I guess you're there for, in part, you're there for the closure of Uluru, yeah?
2: Yeah. So uh, Mike Bowers and I are here in Ellison talking to people about heat and climate change. I mean, I'm sitting in a car, and I don't know if you can hear the engine running, but the, the outside temperature is 38, mm. and it's half past four in the afternoon. So that's pretty hot mm. for, for this time of year. And you know, we're going out to Uluru on Friday for the closure of the, cl- closure of the climb.
0: Yeah. Well, great story. I, I've got to thank you so much for your time and taking time out of your road trip. Um, and love to have you on again. And really, best of luck with the Walkleys and best of luck for the rest of the week. They're in and from you. The Guardian. And, and in the studio, Michael Cozziel. Uh Always great to see you.
1: Pleasure as always. <laughs> I
0: hope so. And again, best of luck with the Walkley nomination and, uh, and everything else. What's your next story? Wow. Well. Can I could possibly me? <laughs> tell
1: you that. Um, no, I do. Have, I have some good stories in Sunday's paper. You can, you know, oh. you can buy it at all. Good buy it. News you buy, yeah,
0: buy it knows. all news and the uh, front page won't be redacted. <laughs> or maybe it will. Maybe. maybe it will. Who knows?
1: Well, thank <laughs> be you. A really good story.
0: Thank you, Lorena, and thank you, uh, Michael, for your time, and thank you for you everyone for listening to the Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of TSCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. And Fourth Estate is made possible thanks to the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and a few things in between at your leisure. Um, we'll be back with more very soon. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks to my producers. I have two of them this week, uh, Anthony Dockrell and Michael Jones. And my name is Peter Frey, and thanks very much for listening.